Hi, I'm Helen Avery. And I'm Ryan Jude. And you're listening to Green is the New Finance from the Green Finance Institute. In this episode, we'll be discussing the recent IPCC report with Lord Nicholas Stern and the Green Finance Institute CEO, Brianne Marie Thomas, and understanding what response we need from both public and private finance. Imagine what you could have done with really strong, clear, purposive policies. Those costs are going to come down more and actually they're going to be negative. This is the growth story of the 21st century, a very, very different growth story from the past where our activities don't destroy. In many ways, they repair. We've now got this wall of private finance that we need to find a way of channeling towards the mitigation and, importantly, adaptation measures that we need to see in the real economy. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Green is the New Finance. I was going to say our first post-summer episode, but it feels more like summer now than at any point in August. How are you today, Helen? Uh, Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's uh, finally a bit of sun. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, good. I'm actually, I'm enjoying the sun, although the room that I work in is basically an oven, so I'm kind of melting and missing rainy August. Um, Anything exciting happening on your side? Uh, lots actually, sort of getting gearing up for COP, I suppose. And uh, aren't we always? Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's true. Um, what are we going to do? What are we going to do after November? <laughs> what are we going to talk about in these intros? <laughs> um, <laughs> actually, one thing I was just, um, I, I just was doing. I just put in an application for the two of us for the COP twenty six train. I don't know if you've heard about that. I have not. Okay, t- tell me, t- tell me what this is. I, I know about <laughs> COP. I know about trains separately. I'm glad you know about trains. Um, but yeah, you can, um, someone forwarded it to me, actually, you can apply on railtothecop.com for train tickets um, for a train that goes from Amsterdam to Glasgow via London. Um, and is just for those heading to COP, uh, NGOs, climate activists, finance types, policymakers. And the idea is that you will get this train together and have lots of discussions on the way up. Um, which I thought was, might be quite fun, but who knows? I'm sure many people are applying, but fingers crossed. So, so, so we just sit on a train and, and just talk. We, we just do what we're doing on this podcast, but in person. <laughs> but I'm sure during our four or five hours on the train, we'll definitely be talking about what we're going to be discussing today, which is the IPCC report. Nice takeaway. So yeah, we're doing a slightly different episode today in response to the United Nations recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC report. This is the sixth assessment report, and... It's been very hard to avoid any of the fallout from the report and its headline statements about the irreversible human-led damage that we've done to the world and the confirmation that we've already hit around 1.1 degrees of warming since the 19th century. The world over has been reporting on the shocking findings and the fact we need action now. Mm -hmm. And before we introduce our speakers today, we just wanted to provide a little bit of background and context to the report and why it's so important. So the IPCC was established by the United Nations Environment Programme and the World Meteorological Organization back in 1988 with the intention to provide policymakers with regular scientific assessments on climate change. I think that just shows how long it's been that we've been talking about yeah. this. There's been five assessment reports since it was established in 1988. I won't cover all of them. But the first one in 1990 underlined the importance of climate change as a global challenge that needs international cooperation. The second played a crucial role for governments in the run-up to the Kyoto Protocol. And then the fifth, back in 2013, provided the scientific input to the Paris Agreement. So 
These have been comprehensive reports with large consequences. Mm -hmm. And the latest report is no different in that regard. It used five new emissions scenarios to help drive model projections. And each one of those scenarios predicted we will eclipse the 1.5 degrees of warming target within the next two decades. Yeah, it's it's not great. It is, it is genuinely pretty stark reading. And the authors conclude that it's unequivocal that humans have warmed the planet, causing widespread and rapid changes to Earth's oceans, ice and land surface. And it says that many of these changes are now irreversible. Um, so the starkest report out to date, actually, and uh, understandably, it's received a lot of attention. And today we're hoping to discuss this report, or we're going to discuss this report, and its findings in the context of finance. How should the finance sector, public and private, react? And we have two guests who will help us with that, Lord Stern and our very own CEO, Rianne Marie Thomas. Yep. So up first, we have Lord Stern, who will be discussing the potential public finance response, both in the UK with the upcoming comprehensive spending review and globally with COP26 on the horizon. Among many other roles, Lord Stern is the chairman of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics. He was previously chief economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development chief economist at the World Bank and has held several senior positions in the UK civil service in various departments. Lord Stern was also the head of the famous Stern Review on the Economics of Climate Change published back in 2006, which was the first report of its kind to quantify the costs to address climate change and the impacts that it could have on the global economy. We could also talk for another 10 minutes about everything that Lord <laughs> Stern's done. I highly recommend looking up his bio online, but we are thrilled to have him on today given all the experience that he has in the sector. Indeed. So let's get him on. So Nick, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, we can only imagine how busy this period is for you right now in the run up to COP26. So much appreciated for giving us your time today. Very good. Looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, great. So Nick, let's jump right into it. So the IPCC's success report has given the strongest description yet that climate change has been directly influenced by human activities. It's confirmed we're unlikely to avoid the much-discussed 1.5 degrees of global warming, with all of the report scenarios showing we passed that by 2040. And it's also confirmed that we've already surpassed 1.1 degrees of warming already. Now, the world rightly reacted with shock at the report, but we must note this isn't the first time we've heard such startling statements. So why do you think the response has been so strong this time, and what stood out for you personally in the report? Well, we should note that this is AR6. You know, it's the six of these, and each one has been more disturbing than the one that went before. So there's a systematic underestimation of the risks that are involved. Um, what struck me from this is the intensity and frequency of what is actually happening now. Mm. Now, we see it reported, of course, with terrible fires, terrible floods right across the world. So the first thing is that this is actually, I think, the first one that has put so much focus on what is actually happening and pointing out that what is actually happening is worse and more disturbing than had been anticipated. So it's not just looking forward, it's looking to what's hitting us right now. The second thing is that it underlines that two degrees is really dangerous. You know, at, at the time of Paris 2015 or 
few years before that, the world was discussing two degrees as the borderline of dangerous. Now we see, you know, just on 1.1, it's already unpleasant, but two degrees is really worrying about what it would do to lives and livelihoods across the world and, and indeed to uh, people having to move in very, very large numbers. So that the focus on 1.5, which really intensified uh, in 2018 and the 1.5 degree report of the IPCC, which showed that two degrees was much more dangerous than 1.5, that has really been underlined. We really should be aiming for 1.5. Now, we don't have many years left before we're going to exceed the allowances that we've got for 1.5. So we have to learn from that, that even recognising that we're going to overshoot, the dangers are so intense, we'd better act very intensely and strongly now. So it carries a big sense of risk and it carries a big sense of urgency, even more than those that went before, which were pretty disturbing. Yeah, I think that's one of the main things that I think has been missed in the response we've seen that every report previously has been equally disturbing. But it's great to see that people are picking it up now. Um, related to what you said at the end there, I've mentioned already that all five scenarios say we're going to overshoot 1.5. Do you harbour hope still that we could still rein it under if, if we act urgently? I, I think it's going to be hard to hold it to 1.5, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And it does seem to me that we ought to go flat out to try to hold it to 1.5, recognising that we uh, could well be overshooting. So we have to prepare for that. And that means focusing on negative emissions. Absolutely. And we understand quite a lot about negative emissions. Uh, they will not be enormous, but they're certainly possible. And we have to work that work towards that, particularly around natural capital. And, of course, natural capital you know, our land and our forests and our oceans, our water. Our natural capital is much more than negative emissions, uh, even though, of course, it's critical from that point of view. It's also a much better ecosystem and biodiversity as well. So, Nick, on this, maybe we can talk about what governments should be doing as a response, because it does feel like, you know, we just keep hitting the snooze button on all these reports. Um, one comment I saw that you made after the port, after the report was initially released was that, Every government should now be focused on the investments and innovation required to reach net zero emissions as quickly as possible. Could you elaborate on this for us? You know, what does that look like? You're absolutely right. The report comes in and people say these risks are even bigger than we thought. The urgency is even more intense. And then they go on as if nothing had been said or reported on. The challenge then is to get that statement of risk and urgency into action. What we have to do now uh, as a world is to invest more and invest differently. So this is a story of investment and innovation. The changes that we need, the different kinds of power generation, the different kinds of vehicles, the different ways of creating uh, steel, the different kinds of buildings that we need and the retrofits on the buildings we've got, are all about investment. Investment with wonderful returns, including, of course, the uh, lower emissions, but way beyond that, you know, all kinds of efficiencies, 
and cleaner uh, cities, cities where you can move and breathe, ecosystems which are robust and fruitful, and just more efficient. So the investments that are there that uh, we can see and the investments that we're going to have to create and discover are enormously attractive, but they have to be made. We have to increase outside China. Uh, of course, China invests so much. It's a question of changing the composition of China's investment. But elsewhere, we have to invest more and differently. And that's the challenge. It is a very exciting challenge because it's an investment that can uh, restore growth and give us a very different form of growth, one that's not destructive to the uh, environment. But we have to recognize that this is a story of strong investment and different investment. And it's that recognition that will drive policy. So you ask the question, how can we change our systems to enable that, whether it's our cities, our transport systems, or our grids, that will enable that investment? How do we have prices, taxes, subsidies that foster that uh, investment? And how do we bring the right kind of finance in the right place at the right time? Those are the questions which we now need to ask, but in a very positive way, because this is embracing something that's tremendously attractive, but it doesn't happen unless we get on with it. Story of investment and innovation, I think that sums it up perfectly. I think too often this becomes a story of, you know, panic and fear at what's happening, but we need to, as you said, embrace what the future is going to hold for us. So looking at the UK government specifically, everybody sees COP this year as the next big milestone, but we of course have the three-year comprehensive spending review coming up, hopefully before COP. This could be a way for the UK government to almost respond to the report and show their increasing public green investment. And related to this, I know that you've recently publicly warned against a return to austerity right now at a time when you believe spending by government should be helping people to switch to electric vehicles or replace their boilers. But having said that, what do you expect the spending review will include? Do you think the Treasury will go big on green spending? It's difficult to distinguish between what I expect and what I hope. Um, <laughs> give, what give, I, us both. give us both. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I think that the recognition that um, premature austerity would be very dangerous is there. The question is, is it there strongly enough to overcome quite understandable treasury concerns about levels of public spending? I think that responsible public finances are extremely important. I did indeed work in the UK Treasury. I've been chief economist of the World Bank. I teach public finance and have done for decades. Responsible public finance is very important to strong and stable investment over time. But we have to recognise that we have come through an extraordinarily difficult period uh, associated with covid we have very big investments that we need to make from the point of view of climate. And responsible public finance, for me, lies in getting growth going and getting growth going strongly and getting growth going through investment. And that then starts to generate the public finances over the medium term. If you slap on the public finance constraints hard now, that investment will not come. You will not tackle the climate crisis properly. You will not come out of the COVID crisis properly. So 
That's what I mean by the dangers of premature austerity, that the route to growth is investment. Most of that will be private investment. So we have to think about incentive structures and finance for private investment. That's why the UK Infrastructure Bank, which many of us were arguing for for a long time and has been created this year, is a good idea. But what you've got to do is to generate now the demand for investment by very clear medium-term plans about where we're going. Investment is not a short-term phenomenon. So the clear sense of direction, charting the path, is the first thing. And a very strong, clear commitment to that path will be crucial. I do think it's a good idea to strengthen carbon pricing. I do think it's a good idea to strengthen regulation about uh, buildings and heating. Uh, I do think it's a good idea to really invest strongly in electric vehicle charging infrastructure so that the confidence for the purchasers of the cars and the confidence of the makers of the cars is strong. And that, of course, linked to the phase out, the sale of the internal combustion engine vehicles by 2030 can be very powerful. So a very strong chart, a sense of direction, charting of the path in an incredible way, the incentive structures, the investing uh, in R&D, the right kind of regulation. Not all of these involve a lot of public expenditure, but some of it does. Start with how do we mobilize the private investment, but then say, well, there will have to be some support for the rollout of the charging infrastructure for electric vehicles. There will have to be some support, particularly for poorer people, around uh, changing heating and improving insulation. So that's the way I would try and see it. Very clear, medium and longer term goals, and then some specific support over these next three, four, five years, which will enable the investments necessary. Absolutely. I think what you said there is crucial, that the public finance guiding the private finance in, because there is such an amount of money that we need to achieve this. Um, I do have one follow on, though. You know, it's been 15 years now, um, apologies to remind you, since the Stern Review, where you found that cutting carbon emissions, so that CO2 peaked in the range of 450 to 550 parts per million, would cost 1% of GDP annually. And of course, if we didn't, it would cost up to 20%. But um, a recent study by the think tank WWF showed that the green policies at the minute add up to around 0.01% of GDP. So do you think we need to see more ambition in the spending review? I, I think it should be an ambitious spending review for a new form of growth and the investment that will drive that growth. That's the basic guiding story that I think should be there, along with the sort of innovation and discovery that will be embedded in that uh, investment. That's a critical thing. And it is quite remarkable how the costs of doing the kinds of investments we described in 15, 15 years ago, how fast they've fallen. And what we've discovered now is that we have raised our targets from cutting by 80% to cutting to cutting by 100%. And at the same time, our estimates of the cost of doing this have come right down. And that is an indication that if you apply your mind to this, you discover so much. There's no way 15 years ago that we would have thought that the cost of solar energy would have come off by a factor around 10 or how fast offshore wind would fall. We didn't forecast that. And that comes through 
in terms of a broad sense of direction and responsibility. Imagine what you could have done with really strong, clear, purposive policies, still more purposive than the ones we've seen. Those costs are going to come down more and actually they're going to be negative. This is the growth story of the 21st century, a very, very different growth story from the past where our activities don't destroy. In many ways, they repair. So that's the story now. And this positive story of opportunity, backed by the evidence, backed by the experience, is something that's changing public debate, but hasn't yet changed it fast enough and far enough. On that, Nick, um, I mean, I think you clearly make the case for why it's an opportunity. And I I know recently you've talked about how um, these investments are going to improve growth, prosperity and living standards around the world for all. Um, Why do you think that message isn't getting through? Um, Any thoughts? I think it's partially getting through. Um, There is a conservatism uh, in our behaviour where we're a little bit suspicious of change and dislocation. And that is uh, understandable. We have to be really convincing that it's a good thing and help get over the difficulties, manage the uh, dislocations that are going to occur when you change very uh, rapidly. I think we have to uh, show the examples of how these kinds of changes have been happening. Some of it is still you've got vested interests who will try to exaggerate the costs of uh, doing this, as opposed to saying, here's an opportunity, here's some difficulties, how do we handle the difficulties? You get those with vested interests, you know, in in oil and gas and coal and so on, will try to say how difficult it is to make all this uh, happen. I think actually those vested interests are changing and starting to be more uh, constructive. And so I think overcoming the worry about dislocation and upheaval, uh, showing that actually you can manage this, is a very important challenge to which policy and behavioural economics, our understanding of helping people across uh, difficulties, that will be a huge part of the uh, story. What makes me optimistic and sitting in a university and talking to our students is the way in which young people are involved in uh, all this. And it's not simply they're saying, you've made a big mess, you clean it up. That's true, and they should say it, but they are actually very well informed about how to handle this. And you can sit down with your students at LSE, and that's where I am, or other universities where other people are, and you sit down with them, and they're full of ideas. They're very knowledgeable. They've done their reading. They've done their research. They're thinking through new ways of doing things. And that part of the story, I think, is one grounds for optimism. Well, it's very comforting to hear your optimism, Nick, I have to say, because <laughs> it doesn't often um, translate when you open the paper, does it every day? Um, I'm very optimistic about what we can do mm-hmm. and optimistic about some of the things we are doing. I worry deeply about whether we will move uh, quickly enough, fast enough, uh, all round and effectively enough. You pointed out recently that richer countries have a duty to help poorer countries with the finance to make their investments, which you know will help us all. Are there any specific tools or mechanisms that you've been considering to help achieve this? Yes, I think by 2025, we should see a very big expansion in bilateral uh, 
uh, concessional finance going from rich countries to poor countries bilaterally, perhaps to the a level of $60 billion a year by 2025. That would be more or less doubling relative to 2018. I think it's perfectly uh, possible the United States will have to play a big role in leading, but I think other countries can uh, follow. And the secondly is our multilateral development banks will have to expand very strongly their uh, investments in, in this area. Then together, I think you can start to really bring down the cost of finance and take some of the risks that will enable the private sector to do the lion's share of the investing and financing. On the bilateral finance from rich to poor countries then, the famous figure of $100 billion, which was first set, I think, in 2009, it was one of the pillars of the Paris Agreement. There's been a lot of you know stories about the fact that we haven't achieved that yet. Do you think that is something that we're going to see happen in the next year or two? Um, it, yeah, it was, it was $100 billion a, a year by 2020. Uh, well, we missed 2020. We'll probably hit it in 2022. Um, but what I'm suggesting is let's um, unpack that. Let's look at the bilateral flows and the multilateral flows and the private flows separately. Uh, the private flows were wrapped up in the 100 billion and they lead to sort of some difficulties of definition. Is this private flow as a result of uh, public action in the rich countries that enabled that private flow. Uh, what I've pointed to is, look, let's get those bilateral flows up to $60 billion a year by 2025. Let's get the multilateral flows up perhaps to $90 billion a year. And then the uh, there will be much more in the private sector. We can't commit to what that will be because the private sector will choose what it does, but we can create the conditions under which it's strong. But we have to take that argument forward now to bilateral finance, multilateral finance and private sector and treat them separately, but with the strong complementarities and mutual support they embody. And I say that as somebody who was very closely involved in negotiating the original 100 billion in 2009. Fantastic. I mean, that brings us then to, I touched on it earlier, but obviously COP26 is coming up later this year. In light of the reports and with this renewed sense of urgency, hopefully, that we're going to see from, from national governments, what are your main hopes that you want to see from a public green finance perspective at the summit? Well, first, they should be framed around the net zero commitment and strong commitments to cut emissions during this decade up to 2030. And we should look to collaborate with countries, including around finance, the way I described, to try to get those uh, commitments as strong as uh, possible. Uh, so net zero and very strong for 2030. I do think uh, a focus on resilience and adaptation, but recognising that we can combine that with development and mitigation. Now, whether it's public transport or decentralised solar or mangroves or restoring degraded land, that's mitigation, adaptation and resilience and development all wrapped up together. But we must keep our eyes on the resilience uh, story and natural capital would be very important. And that will give a framework for the right kind of finance in the right place at the right time. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating discussion we've had today. And the optimism and the way that you're reframing the messaging, hopefully that is what we'll see achieved over the over the next few months. But thanks so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure, Ryan and Helen. But please remember, optimism about what we can do has to be translated into optimism about what we will do. 
And we're very excited to now be joined by our CEO, Rian Marie Thomas, to discuss the private finance response to the report. Yes, um, Rianne has previously joined us on the podcast, but for a quick recap, Rianne has been the CEO of the Green Finance Institute since 2019, having previously been the global head of green banking at Barclays and the founder and chair of the Barclays Green Banking Council. So welcome, Rianne, for the second time to Green is the New Finance, our first ever return guest, except you have me as well as Helen this time. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm really well, thank you, and honoured that you're having me for the second time. Thanks, <laughs> Who else could we have as our first repeat guest except our CEO? Um, so we've just been speaking to Lord Stern about the response we could see from public finance in regard, in regard to the IPCC report. And a big part of what he said is, of course, around the need for public finance to catalyse and crowd in private finance, which I know is one of your favourite topics and what we're going to be discussing today. But first, the report, of course, caused shockwaves globally, and it would be hard for anyone, private or public sector, to have missed the call for more to be done. But what was your initial reaction to the report? Well, honestly, I mean, it was obviously really sobering. Um, But we know, like, the IPCC has been producing these reports since 1990. Um, Back then, the scientists weren't sure that the changes they were observing in in the climate was actually due to human activity. But this latest report, it said the evidence is unequivocal and the use of that word was really powerful. And and that's one of the things that stood out to me. I'm still in contact with some of the smartest lawyers I know, like Wendy Miles, to to better understand what that's going to mean for litigation risk for corporates and particularly for the finance sector. Um, But I haven't got an update to share with you today. They're they're all working hard on that. I think there were two other points as well, which was, you know, the challenge for IPCC reports in the past have been that the science was always anticipating what was going to happen at the impacts that we should expect to see in the future. But this report came against a backdrop of a heat bomb in North America and floods in Germany. And obviously now we've had the tragic floods in New York as well. And so there was always going, previously there was always going to be some room for doubters and deniers and, you know, which are providing some excuses to debate rather than, you know, move to action. But I think what's different, as I say, is this report has come against a backdrop of increasingly observable extreme weather events and also against an unprecedented commitment from the finance and private sector to get to net zero. We've never had this moment in time where we've had globally all the globally systemically important banks and the large asset managers all signing up for you know the Glasgow Finance Alliance or net zero and the race to zero. We've now got this wall of private finance that we need to find a way of channeling towards the mitigation and importantly, on the back of this report, adaptation measures that we need to see in the real economy. So whilst it was, honestly, the, that report, it, and it, I defy anyone to read even excerpts of that report and not have like real just chills down their spine. Um but the important thing is now that we look now that we know what's at stake and why we need to do this we need to get the smartest minds thinking about how we do it and importantly 
how we channel the money and turn this into an investment opportunity so that public and private finance gets deployed efficiently towards it. So you mentioned um, litigation risk there, uh, which I think is really interesting. It's not something I thought about with regards to sort of the impact of this report for the private sector. Um, And, you know, the report is led by academics and policymakers, and sometimes that role of the private sector can get lost. What, What do you think the report, like, really means for the private sector in, in your view and, and how they're going to start tackling that that how I suppose how they how they're going to start working through what it says I remember having a conversation a few years ago with some uh, very senior banking representatives um, and it was a very con- candid conversation about why we weren't seeing more progress on mainstreaming green finance and amongst the you know discussion about paucity of data and harmonization of standards and sort of lack of expertise and all those things there was also this suggestion that there was a cognitive barrier um, in financial services the idea that the risk from climate change was wasn't really or climate change as, as an agenda item it really wasn't you know proper business it wasn't really the business of business and I think we've in the past few years we've really overcome that cognitive barrier. And I think that, you know, it's something that they need to be prioritizing. It's it's up there with, you know, technological advances in how we do finance. It's one of the key themes in how we need to look at how we, you know, financial decision-making. And I think one estimate that I saw shortly after the report came out said the total value of financial asset at risks from you know, continuing business as usual was at $24 trillion. Mm. So I think the need to mitigate those risks and the arguments have become so urgent now. The recognition that the cost of inaction vastly outweighs the opportunity for investment that we need to be thinking about. Um, And so I think to answer your question, Helen, it's a renewed sense of urgency that we really do need to get behind thinking about what the financial mechanisms are and what the genuine barriers are to deploying more capital more quickly. Financial services are full of creative and ingenious people that know how to structure um, complicated solutions and are incentivized to make money. And so if they could see that there was an opportunity, genuinely an opportunity to make money from green alternatives, they'd be piling into those trades all day. And the fact that we're not seeing that happen at the speed that this climate emergency suggests we need to be doing it does point to the fact there are genuine barriers in the way. And as you know, our work at the Green Finance Institute is about a really candid assessment of those barriers and then working with with everybody, the scientists, the policymakers, the financiers, the industry representatives, in genuinely figuring out how how we can solve some of those barriers through genuine practical application. It, it's key. It's absolutely key. So what do you think some of these main barriers are that are stopping private finance investing more and innovating, as you've said? I think, as we know, these, these barriers are different by sector. And that's what we need is to look in a very granular way at what the transition pathways are for each sector and what is the most impactful way that we can use concessionary finance um, 
Yeah, so that's philanthropic capital, that's government balance sheets, that's overseas development money, that's uh, balance sheets in the development finance institutions to de-risk uh, investment opportunities so that we can really avail of this wall of capital that sits in the private sector that has aligned itself to ESG or has made commitments to net zero, but still need to uh, generate risk-adjusted returns that are acceptable to the investment community. And so a, a lot of the barriers here are just the complexity of some of these new structures that we need to put in place that involve a far broader group of stakeholders than really has previously been the case in pursuing business as usual. I think that's a big one. There are obviously other barriers in the way around, you know, agreement on what constitutes green investment, what genuine transition pathways look like for different industry sectors. Um, and obviously we're, we're working with a number of groups that are pursuing that. But I genuinely think even more focus on the actual financial mechanisms and how we use public capital really efficiently. That's I'm probably going to die on the hill of shouting <laughs> guarantees, not grants. <laughs> and are there any examples that you can share from a UK perspective of how how that actually works? Yeah, there's an obviously, and we've got a brilliant case study in the UK in offshore wind. And this is, again, something that I've shared publicly on a number of occasions where, you know, you, we saw this great collaboration between government and the private sector in genuinely looking, what, looking at what the barriers were to developing a world-class high, new yeah, high potential technology in the UK. So I think something like 40% of offshore global wind capacity now sits around the British coastline. And that that happened through a mix of the UK government looking at the regulatory and legislative barriers, but also coming up with contracts for differences that gave project developers that sort of long-term comfort on cash flows. And also setting up the green investment bank which acted as a you know as an early mover in financing an unfamiliar sector and then successfully crowding in institutional capital so we have a blueprint we have a green print that we can use in other sectors of what that collaboration can look like and what smart use of government balance sheet can look like in order to create an entirely new industry that today employs tens of thousands of people. And outside of the UK, um, more widely, how, how do you think different stakeholders in the private sector can use this report to influence their decision making? One of the things I thought was really interesting in the report that they haven't done before in IPCC reports was they've they share that comprehensive list of the 35 physical climate hazards and they've grouped them into seven categories. So I think on a, a very practical way to answer the question Helen, is to make sure that, you know, corporate disclosure initiatives, um, and obviously the TCFD come to mind, but there are others too, they need to integrate that list into the sort of guidance documents and into the way that um, organisations are assessing risk by sector. Um, so I think that is one very practical conclusion from that report or takeaway from that report. And then the other one is, is again... The collaboration word, right? It's just making sure that climate scientists and 
the the knowledge that sits in civil society around this topic is really being brought into the private sector, be that corporates or the financial sector, and making a, a real effort to to actually start incorporating some of that knowledge into the way decisions are being made. That I think there are other, you know, there are broader points to be made around the need for us to collectively be looking at adaptation finance. I think something like only 10% of climate finance at the moment goes into adaptation. And if we're learning anything from this report and from what we're observing as the scientists' predictions are, you know, horrifyingly being played out in front of our own eyes, is that we need to make sure our infrastructure has been adapted to, to cope and be resilient with a changing climate. Again, that's difficult because a lot of adaptation investment doesn't really lend itself to straightforward revenue payback models. Mm. Um, and so that's, again, where we need collaboration with concessionary capital um, and more ingenuity about some of those financial mechanisms. And that, as you say, is important in the UK, but it's increasingly important in other jurisdictions. I think I read somewhere that in 2019, of the five countries most impacted by extreme weather events globally, um, they were all in Africa. Mm. And yet the 54 countries in Africa have contributed less than 1% of cumulative emissions. So that's, that's a different topic, but one of climate justice. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, I know you've not heard the discussion we had with Lord Stern earlier, but a big part of his his points was around transferring wealth from the richer countries to the poor ones, because they will, of course, be the ones that are disproportionately impacted. So it's definitely one that we need to keep on the agenda. Um, just going back to something you said earlier. So you mentioned that financial institutions are full of people that can structure these innovative new deals, they pile it into green finance if the opportunities were there. So I'm just interested in your thoughts on what sorts of financial instruments do you think we're going to need to see achieve a larger scale within this decade to ensure we act upon the report's warning? I mean, you know, sustainable bonds have been a great success story, but they're not going to achieve this transition alone. So what else do you think we need to see achieve scale and mainstream acceptance? Yeah, the green bonds growth has been rapid and really impressive. I mean, the first one was just over 10 years ago. And now I think there was record, what was it, the issuance last year, nearly $270 billion. So we've seen a huge growth in, in green bonds, but the, and, and often people just assume green finance is just green bonds. And obviously that's not the case. We, we need to put a green lens on all our financial securities and instruments. But coming back to, your, uh, to the point about channeling more capital to emerging markets, developing markets, as you know, you know, you and I've been working with our colleagues in South Africa, Ryan, on really getting to the bottom of what would be the most impactful intervention to channel capital into sub-Saharan African infrastructure. And, we, you know, we've uncovered some pretty interesting dynamics in that work. Um, for one thing, in a country like South Africa, for example, a middle-income country, but one that is heavily reliant on its high carbon industries, um, there are deep pools of domestic capital in the South African market. But due to you know, completely sensible regulation, those pension pots, for example, have got to invest in investment grade 
security. So a lot of that money gets channeled into government securities, including, you know, UST bills and infrastructure is struggling to attract that private finance. And so, you know, as you know, the conversations we've had have been around how could we use Western money for want of a better term to create credit enhancement guarantee facilities uh, that would then enable the South African banks to underwrite those transactions and distribute the paper to uh, their own domestic pension funds and institutional investors. So creating that green finance market and deepening their market and channeling money towards infrastructure projects. And as you know, just by virtue of doing this work and structuring that guarantee with our counterparts in South Africa, we've tripped over a billion dollars worth of shovel-ready climate smart infrastructure projects that the banks would be interested in financing, but they're being held back because of this particular dynamic. And we've since looked in Kenya, Rwanda, Ghana, and found a similar, very similar supply demand and similar barriers in those markets as well. Grant monies or, you know, concessionary finance is the only solution that we can't actually find a way of generating a return that would attract private capital. But there are other situations where I think more structured use of government balance sheet and philanthropic capital and concessionary money could crowd in that private money that's sitting there looking for green opportunities to invest. That's where we need to get smart thinkers working together and figuring out exactly how do we match the right supply of capital with the demand. So just wrapping up, like in light of the report, Rianne, um, what are your main hopes and expectations to come out of COP26? Well, obviously the key thing that we need to come out of COP26 on the diplomatic front is, you know, renewed nationally determined contributions uh, with real ambition and real teeth um, from right across the globe. Um, But from a purely a finance perspective, I genuinely would like to see us really building on this work around Race to Zero and GFANS and the Net Zero commitments and start talking more and more about these financial mechanisms that are needed. I'm clearly of the view that to solve a global issue like climate change, it needs to be led by policy. But the policy does need to be informed by the projects and by what's genuinely needed in order for us to channel more capital. I'd really like us to have a conversation that includes how we can use private finance, deploy private finance towards some of those goals. Uh, and do that in a smart and structured way. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Daria. I'm very conscious of your time, but thank you for coming on and sharing all your insights. And I think the overarching message that we've got from yourself and Lord Stern is that this report is really a wake-up call. We need to act quicker. We need to act now, and it will take public and private collaboration to achieve the finance that the finance needs that we need. So, thank you for coming on and sharing all that. Well, thanks, Ryan and Helen, and. Let's hope we get Lord Stern in as for a second discussion on our podcast. <laughs> right, so lots to digest there from both our amazing speakers. Helen, any takeaways of note from you? 
Yeah, a couple of things stood out for me. Um, thanks for asking, Ryan. Uh, so from Lord Stern, it was the discussion around the need for greater bilateral concessional finance. Um, he said he anticipates an expansion of, uh, of that from richer to poorer countries by up to $60 billion a year by 2025. Um, and he also mentioned this need for multilateral development banks to, to up their game, really. And those two things will um, hopefully crowd in private sector capital needed too. And then from Priyan, that underscoring of finance for adaptation, which is still really missing from this broader conversation, and of course then brings in natural climate solutions and the value of natural capital, which is also a point Lord Stern made. Um, what about you, Ryan? I knew you'd bring up adaptation and natural capital. It's your favorite thing. <laughs> um, for me, I think one of the most important points from Lord Stern's comments is that we simply cannot afford to go back to a period of austerity, which there's been rumors that that may or may not be what happens in the spending review. And we need to start speaking about investing in the green economy, not in terms of costs, but as longer term opportunities and investments, which will cause green growth. You know, we're always talking about so that messaging can just get lost and we need to make sure that it's front and center of every discussion this isn't just a cost that we have to bear um and from rian it's one of those points again that we often bring up and that is efficient use of public capital to crowd in private finance the use of guarantees being a big one yeah yeah no i, I definitely agree um so that's actually it from green is the new finance this week uh, we hope you found the ipcc deep dive useful certainly as we get closer to cop 26 we'll be back in a couple of weeks with guest ailey mctaggart chief executive of the scottish national investment bank to discuss the role of concessionary capital there you go maybe those guarantees will come up brian <laughs> i and, hope um, so <laughs> <laughs> and how scotland is using finance to bolster its commitments to net zero natural capital and the development of a well being economy. So we hope you can join us for that. Well, until then, thanks for listening to Green is the New Finance. Green is the New Finance is brought to you by the Green Finance Institute with audio production by Fairly Media.